Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Forged in Fire, where we explore how LGBTQ plus leaders develop their leadership superpowers. You'll hear from guests as they share how they navigated their journey through adverse and crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallaro. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. I'm an astronautical engineer in the United States Space Force and one of the senior transgender officers in the military. I'm a passionate advocate for the value inclusion brings to organizations. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallaro. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ leaders are forged. Welcome to another episode of Forged in Fire. Today we are thrilled to be joined by Rodrigo Hang Leitonen. Rodrigo is the Executive Director of the National Center for Transgender Equality and an NCTE Action Fund. He is a transgender policy, advocacy, and messaging expert. And as a Cuban-American, openly transgender man, his wide-ranging experience in the LGBTQ movement has covered field organizing, leadership development, fundraising, and media advocacy. In past roles, he trained thousands of volunteers to canvas and phone bake on groundbreaking non-discrimination and marriage equality campaigns. He also organized leadership development programs in transgender communities, LGBT communities of color. He honed new strategies for social change. Rigo, we are thrilled to have you on the show today, and, and we thought there are few better guests that we could possibly have to talk about leadership, talk about how you became the man that you are, and even to dive into some of the controversies that we have today, because you sit kind of at the center of a hurricane, uh, maybe not even in the center, because that's supposed to be calm. Uh, so we would love to jump into that. But first, we really want to talk about you and your journey uh, to who you are today. Now, I know you have a pretty incredible family history a mother that served in Congress basically since the time you were born till well into adulthood, a father who served as a district attorney, grandfather who was an author and uh, anti-Castro advocate. So you had so many things in your family history that kind of showed you ways of leading, of being, um, and things to be passionate about. What is it that you took away from those developmental years in such an out and advocating family that helped shape you into the man you are today? Well, that's so kind of you to say that. Thank you for uh, for all that. And, and thank you for having me on today. I'm so excited. I mean, for my family, certainly the top thing I learned out of that was the importance of being civically engaged. You know, a lot of times the sort of interpretation of like when people hear um, my family's background, um, the reaction is, wow, that sounds like they were very Republican and you are not. So that that kind of got, that kind of partisan divide is often what sticks out to people. But to me, what was most prominent was just that much more basic idea of needing to be engaged and that democracy is something that needs to be defended. And you have to... Um, take that responsibility really seriously. So regardless of any liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, whatever kind of distinction, my family was very much like, you can vote for whoever you want, just please vote. 
<laughs> you know, like be part of this process. Um, so I'm really grateful that I grew up in a household where political disagreement was not taboo and, and politics was not taboo. Um, that was very much bread and butter, dinner table conversation, things that not normally people would think are controversial to talk about with your family was just the family business for us. Um, and so it really made it very natural and easy for me to, to do activist work for a living clearly on a different topic than they expected since they work on transgender rights. Um, that was not exactly on their radar before. Um, but you know, as, uh, as contradictory as uh, that can seem on the surface. To me, it felt very much like just a continuation of, of that same tradition, just in a different way. Yeah, I imagine that the ability to have very real conversations around the dinner table was helpful. But but as you said, it wasn't necessarily what they were expecting. Um, so we were wondering about your coming out experience and and what that process was like and how that informed you as a leader today. Well, definitely my family was shocked. That is right. That they did uh, not see uh, it coming, that they would have a transgender person in their family. I mean, for me, uh, it really took me a while to even come to the understanding that I was trans. Um, And so I, you know, was understanding that it would take them a minute too. I mean, a lot of transgender people know that they are transgender from a really young age, but that was not my experience. I did not have that kind of clarity or that certainly that vocabulary. For me, it was more like I just knew something was off. I knew something was different, but I didn't have a way of understanding why that was. The only way I could really understand it was that, or like try to even describe it, was that it felt like there was some kind of fog between me and other people. There was some kind of disconnect. There was some kind of distance. I could never quite bridge the gap. And I didn't know why. And it wasn't until I met other transgender people that that was the light bulb moment. That was like, oh my God, okay, it all clicked. Like, (laughs) this is what's happening. Um, And so I did not really have a period of being closeted in the traditional sense of that. So much as I had a long period of not understanding what was going on inside me. And then once I understood, then I came out. And then I, I pretty much told people very quickly, um, including my family. And so they were shocked. Um, certainly, they did not have any kind of familiarity with transgender people. Um, they had no context for understanding this. But they did say, my parents still did say, you're my kid. You know, like that won't change. Like that fundamental recognition was still there. And that's not to be taken for granted. I mean, I wish we could take it for granted if we lived in any kind of just world, then we could just assume that parents will keep loving their kids unconditionally. Um, But unfortunately, we're not there yet, right? Like plenty of trans people do still get rejected when they come out. So I'm really grateful that my parents at least said, like, you're still our kid. We still love you. We will figure this out. And it it took years for them to really process it in an, um, in a deep way. Um, but they got there. And I think for all of us in our family, it was a, this extended exercise in figuring out what is actually important. Um, then not that we knew it that way at the time, but looking back on it, that's what it was because certainly coming out as trans 
was going to have some kind of cost, whether it's like approval of the public, because um, my mom was still in elected office at the time. She was still a member of Congress. So we were worried, is this going to affect her reelection? Um, we didn't know how voters would react to finding out that she had a trans kid um, or how donors would react. Um, we didn't know how extended family would react in our personal lives. So like there was even with at least my parents being like, we still love you, there still was a high chance that something significant was going to blow up. (laughs) Um, And so it was still scary in different ways. And we had to just keep kind of all assessing for ourselves what actually matters and what can, what can you let go? Um, Cause you're not going to be able to go back to the life you had before, but hopefully you can still have a good one, but you, it takes a weird kind of prioritization almost to identify like what actually matters to you and, and, and what can, what did you think mattered to you that you can actually kind of let go after all? Yeah. So that idea of, you know, what matters to you, it is really interesting. The analogy you provided of not having a period in the closet, but having a period of being in fog. And that's fascinating to me because so often what comes up with our guests is ways in which parts of the journey of people in the queer community are actually very similar to just the journey of coming into adulthood, coming into one's own, kind of figuring out who am I going to be in this world? How am I going to show up? How am I going to connect with other people? What's different or unique about me? And and how am I going to navigate through that? And so I think a lot of us see that experience um, and really can learn something from it and take something away. And, and your concept of being in the fog, I think is, it really has a lesson in it. And I'm wondering what kinds of experiences you've had connecting with other people on just that process. That's super interesting. I never thought about that analogy before of, of transitioning to adulthood, so to speak, but that's really real. I really agree with that. Um, because it is sort of self-discovery. Um, it is kind of a, a coming of age narrative in a way. Um, and yeah, I think, I think if from that perspective, a lot of people can connect to it, even if they're not trans, I mean, trans people were a really small part of the population. So if, um, relating to us is a numbers game, we're going to (laughs) lose. If it takes like personally knowing a trans person, uh, to care, then, Ooh, we've got quite an uphill battle to climb, uh, mountain to climb. But I think there is something really emotionally resonant about the idea of authenticity and just like being kind of lost and figuring it out and then trying to, trying to crew, trying to build a life of one's own creation, like trying to do what feels right for you, even though there's not much of a roadmap for it. And it's certainly not what anyone uh, expected of you. Like, I think that resonates with a lot of people, um, especially people with any kind of like creative vocation or anyone who's like going against their family's wishes. I mean, there's like all sorts of reasons why you might be breaking the box like that. Um, and why it might be confusing admittedly to figure out whether, what is it that you really want and is it even worth it? You know, where is the line? Um, so I think those kinds of themes, are much more universal than just being trans. That's like trying, trying to be human and maybe trying to, you know, if you're a little different in any way. 
Yeah, we talk a lot about the fact that everybody transitions. While for trans people, it may be a much bigger or much more visible event, whether it is going from childhood to adulthood, from single to married, from no kids to kids, changing jobs. These are experiences we can all relate to. So I think that's really important for how we do forge those connections, because you brought up the fact that you know, if we have to have everyone personally know a trans person to change their thoughts about who we are, that's going to take a long time. And that's really difficult. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. And and you saw the benefits of that in your family. I've seen it in mine and in so many others. So a lot of similarities that we can expand on and have to figure out how do we turn our stories into universal stories that connect. So I want to talk a little bit more though about how you built some of those skills to connect with people. Because in one in several perhaps of your first jobs, you were a field organizer. You had to figure out how to connect with people and get them to care about an issue. Can you talk about some of the skills that you built in that early phase of your career? to get people to care about something they might not otherwise have. Yeah, those were that was definitely the whole first phase of my career in field organizing. And for anyone who you know doesn't know what that is, it's sort of like if you've ever uh, gotten a canvasser knock on your door or a phone banker call you and ask, are you registered to vote or are you going to vote in the next election? That was me. That's what I did. Sorry to be annoying. <laughs> but, you know, it works. <laughs> it's what gets people out to vote. Um, and not just for voting, but for taking any kind of political action. Um and so, yeah, those, that was the start of my career. And I really started that just, I fell into it in a way, I, except that I knew I wanted to do um, trans rights. I knew I wanted to do activism for a living if that was at all possible. And um, I figured it would be a good idea for me to do it on trans issues just because I was trans. And um, like you're saying, the power of somebody you know, having a, a human face to that phenomenon um, of knowing a real life trans person is impactful. So I was kind of like, okay, I want to do activism. This seems like where I can make the biggest impact. But beyond that, I wasn't um, wed to any particular strategy or tactic, but I got a field organizing gig. And so that's where I went for a while. Um, and I'm really grateful for it because it really, really teaches you to not make assumptions about people. When you are given a turf packet, which is, this is like, now they actually have computer apps for it, but I was doing this in the paper analog era. They give you a turf packet, which is like, kind of like this clipboard of papers with a map of literally where you're going to knock on doors. And it says this information on there about the voter, very basic demographics, like, um, you know, brief fam, female, this age, this address. And it'll usually say party affiliation and how regular of a voter they are. It doesn't say who they voted for, but whether they voted, because a lot of folks don't know this, but whether or not you vote is public information, even if who you vote for is private. And that's all you get. And it is very, very easy to look at a box on that clipboard that says like 72 years old Republican. And you're like, I do not want to knock on that door about marriage equality. Because <laughs> that was the first issue I was canvassing on was marriage equality was um, when, when we didn't have that yet. 
And, but then you knock on the door and yeah, maybe the person slams the door in your face, or maybe you have a really productive conversation and it actually is really generative. Um, and it just, it like over and over again, teaches you that you cannot predict it. I mean, it's just you, it is so easy to make those assumptions about voters. It is so easy to make those assumptions about people, but it just doesn't bear out to be true. And I don't mean to romanticize it like, oh, all these people you thought weren't supportive are supportive after all. No, a lot of them are not. But you might still have an enriching conversation, or it might turn out that they be that they are supportive, which is good. Or people who you thought would be supportive are not. It's just, it's like people are full of surprises. Um, so having to just do that numbers game where it was like, no, you've got to knock on those doors. You caught gotta call those phone numbers. And you got to talk to this person. You don't have the option to just disregard them. You have to engage and you have to try to persuade them no matter what. That kind of discipline was really powerful. And I don't think that there's any way to build it other than someone just forcing you to knock on the doors or whatever equivalent tactic. Like you, you just have to have that experience a number of times before you're like, oh, right, I get it. <laughs> Oh, I am hearing so much in there about treating a person as an individual, not a statistic. But then also, was there something there for you that built perhaps resilience? You know, if you're getting the door slammed in your face four times out of five or whatever the number ended up being, how do you not take that personally? And how do you keep yourself going in those situations where it's like, oh, this is really hard. Resilience is definitely the right word. Yeah, it absolutely builds that into you. Um, and it and it's difficult because, um, of course, it's uh, demoralizing to have people hang up on you or whatever it is. Um, but also, if it's your job, you just got to keep doing it, right? <laughs> There's just a very practical dimension to it. And it does, I think for me and for a lot of people, it teaches you that, that person hanging up on you is not the end of the world. And then you just call the next number. You know what I mean? And, and I don't want to make it out like phone banking and canvassing are the only things field organizers do. There's many other tactics, but those are kind of the most obvious ones that um, most people are familiar with. And the same lesson applies regardless of any tactics a field organizer is using. Like it just, it really, there's something about the scale that at which you have to operate where you just, you just have to mobilize mass numbers of people that it teaches you that like, there's always another, there's always another event. There's always another shift. There's always another whatever. So like any given defeat in the moment is not permanent and any given win is not permanent for that matter either. Um, but it's just, there's something about fluidity and there's something about how like longer term thinking where you no longer, if, if you, hopefully you get to this point where you no longer define success or failure, uh, in such small terms. And instead you can kind of psychologically start working on longer term time horizons. Um, so you're not so, you're not so, depleted or feeling so defeated by any one bag of interaction, you're just like, that's one out of a million. Right. And you just keep going. So it's, it's sort of like a version of developing thicker skin, but I don't think of it as that you're able to withstand, um, someone being negative towards you so much as I think of it as like, you just know there's a lot more people out there and there's a lot more, whatever it is, a lot more opportunity. Um, so to me, it's about like longer term thinking. Um, and that can feel, that can make it a lot easier to stay motivated because it, it lowers the pressure on any one given interaction. 
That's a really interesting kind of take on the the longer term thinking that you've been able to develop and and then drawing from that in any kind of situation that's going to be tough, that's going to be an uphill battle, um, which certainly all of the work that you've been engaged in your career has has been typified by that that quality. And I'm wondering in particular about some of the harder interactions that you've faced, some of the experiences of marginalization or dealing with microaggressions. And what is it that you've learned from those experiences? And and how have you then channeled that into something productive for yourself as a leader? Well, the biggest one that sticks out to me now is is the sort of more um, existential uh, sense of marginalization of being a trans person in this political environment where trans people have a target on our backs. I mean... Um, we are in a very uh, paradoxical moment right now in the U.S. at least, where acceptance of trans people is growing, but also attacks against trans people are growing, both at the same time. And how can that be true? Like, how can you have both positive and negative simultaneously? Weirdly, it is objectively true, and I think I think it's happening because progress comes with backlash. Uh, trans people made a lot of progress, and we have um, leaps and bounds largely more acceptance than 20 years ago. But of course, there's some people who are really angry about that. And so now they're they're lashing out and they're coming after us with all they got. So um, there's this push and pull. There's this tension of the positive and negative happening at the same time. And for trans people, uh, including myself, you know, I'm not immune to this. It is really, really challenging to hold any of that positive and not get just dragged down in the like, oh my God, but Florida just banned healthcare for trans youth and they're trying to ban it for all trans people in Missouri. Just did a, a, a emergency, quote unquote, emergency executive action to block trans people from getting access to their own hormones. I mean, you, you experience or at least read about all of these ways in which trans people are being marginalized now in the government And, um, that can feel really personal, you know, even though that's not you, even if you don't live in that state, uh, for example, it still feels totally overwhelming and like, oh my God, they're still going to come for me next in some way, you know? Um, so psychologically it still feels like a sense of marginalization. It's not the same as actually living in those states and facing the prospect of your hormones being taken away. Um, but it's instilling a lot of fear in a lot of people. So um, it is a lot to try to stay motivated through that. Um, but yeah, like we were saying about longer term time horizons, longer term thinking, that's where I just keep drawing the inspiration from that like 20 years ago, no one would have thought we would have been able to get this far. And yet we did. <laughs> and so like there are 20 years from now, the attacks we're facing are going to seem absurd. Like the the tide is still turning in our direction on the whole. And just because you are losing in the moment doesn't mean you're losing permanently. Doesn't And it doesn't even mean you're on the wrong path. Um, so that longer term thinking, for me at least, has been essential. I mean, that is the only way I get through this is like continuing to be like, you know what, this today is not, is not per- permanent. Like this is a step in the long moral arc of justice. You know, like MLK fam- famously said, this is a phase that every social justice movement goes through. 
progress comes with backlash, it is still progress and we still get there. And that's not to minimize the harm that is being inflicted today because it's still on us to be active and fight to minimize that harm. But, but it is to like draw some comfort that we are still winning, even if it's on the longer term time horizon. There's a lot we can pull on on this long-term horizon on, on so many things, both as an individual career and in, in what's happening in the world. Uh, Liz and I both thought it was kind of fascinating. As we looked back, we were doing some research on you and your story, and we look at articles written around the time you came out, and the amount of dead naming that was done was remarkable. And then we have to think, but that was common 10 years ago. That was the style. And now when we look at it, it's like, this is jarringly wrong. But that's a great sign of progress that we've moved. We are covering trans people in a much better way. I want to move from that, though, to how your career has shifted from doing that individual level work where you're trying to convince a person to now not only do you have to try and set the conversation on a national level uh, about trans issues or on 50 different state levels, but also to lead others and to develop others. What was that leadership shift like for you of I'm leading myself doing these individual issues to now I'm leading groups of people and creating the dynamics that are going to influence so many more? It was definitely a shift. And, and I think that's a shift that a lot of people experience in their careers, even if it's not activism, you know, just moving into a management level role. And then you're like, wait, I'm, I got promoted because I was good at X thing. And now I'm kind of no longer doing X thing. I'm managing people who do it, which is great, but fundamentally different. Um, and yeah, that's definitely been reflected in my career. Um, and the really, it, it does take a lot of conscious effort to efficiently and like correctly move from doing the work yourself to doing the work by and through other people, not in a way that's taking advantage of people, but is a way that is like setting expectations, getting people resources, setting the container so that they can do it. Um, and you know, that's, to me, that's there's something more natural about it because in field organizing, there's an ethos that you're supposed to work yourself out of a job. Um, the idea is that, like, as a field organizer, you're working on something because there's a problem in society. And um, but if you recruit enough people and then you get big enough numbers and you win the campaign or whatever it is, then you don't have a job anymore, and that's a good thing. <laughs> and that's you know. Uh, much takes a long time to really achieve that victory, but that is the mentality. Like you're, you're supposed to replace yourself. You're supposed to train other activists who can do this better and bigger than you can. Um, so going into then, uh, being executive director of NCTE eventually, like I am now felt in some ways like a natural progression of that organizing ethos. That's like mass mobilization. Um, but still it is, it is a hard habit to break to when you're used to doing all that nitty gritty work yourself. Um, it takes a lot to really deprogram that. Cause for me, I know I always wanted to be a hard worker and I was the kind of person who like, I don't want to drop the ball. And so I'm supposed to be really thorough and do all this stuff. But then eventually if you manage enough people, you're not just uh, no longer being, it's not, 
just no longer good time management for you to spend time on those things. It's like you're in the way. (laughs) You're interrupting it for the people whose job it actually is to do that nitty gritty task and actually have more expertise than you do at this point, because it's what they work on it all day, every day. Um, So it takes, it has taken a lot of deprogramming for me to shift that mentality, I will admit. (laughs) But I'm I'm fortunate to have a really strong team where I can do that. So being able to to put that team to good use, I know one of the things, Rigo, that you're interested in is the importance of being able to give good feedback. Um, but some of the observations you've made about how challenging that can be, how hard that can be, the fears that we experience, especially when it's across differences, right? And so, you know, maybe some folks have had the experience of having to overcome the anxiety of knocking on the door of the 72-year-old Republican, and maybe others haven't. But what is it about that anxiety around uh, giving feedback, especially when there's something different? And, and how does that come to play? Well, it's so... Uh, widely recognize that feedback is critical to professional success, that feedback is how you build your skills because you get this really tailored input on what you're good and bad at, and, and then you can improve. So no one's debating that. And yet I have noticed that sometimes uh, folks get nervous about giving feedback if it's across lines of difference, like you said. And what I mean is if you, if you, um, are demographically different, different in some kind of social marginalization, um, power, privilege, and oppression. Um, Sometimes I've seen people who are not trans be weirdly nervous to give a trans employee feedback because they are, uh, maybe they're scared of the corrective feedback being understood or experienced as like transphobia, you know, like, oh, you're anti-transgender or something. Or maybe they just are unsure of themselves even as a manager where they, um, I don't know, are second guessing. It is hard to learn how to give feedback in a way that still feels good. Um, and when you add lines of difference to the equation, uh, it can inspire a lot more trepidation and people going, Oh my God, am I doing this right? Am I being overly sensitive? Maybe I shouldn't give the feedback. So I've noticed that sometimes there's a weird kind of holding back of giving feedback um, when you're not in the same situation, you know, if it's like one person's white and one's a person of color or one person's straight and one person's gay, um, it really scrambles the airwaves (laughs) of feedback. Um, and I noticed that happening more and more, I think these days, because thankfully people are thinking about lines of difference more. Now, thankfully there's less of an instinct to like pretend the difference doesn't exist. And instead there's more of an embracing and a straightforward kind of naming of it, which is good. But I think some folks are kind of getting their sea legs around it (laughs) and struggling with self-doubt. So yeah, I think, and, and the reason I, um, you know, still think it's so important to break through that discomfort is that weirdly shielding a trans person or whoever it is, um, shielding anyone from feedback just on that basis is really going to hurt them back. Like at the end of the day, I want trans people to succeed. Like I want trans people to move forward in the workplace and get promoted and all that. And that means we got to have strong skills like anyone else. And so if no one's giving us feedback, we're not going to develop the skills. (laughs) Like it is, uh, that 
I, I worry about that becoming some kind of weird professional barrier um, of folks who are marginalized and finally getting opportunities, then not actually being able to seize on those opportunities because no one will be straightforward with them about basic everyday things. Um, and, you know, this maybe this is a thing that's happening more in nonprofits than elsewhere. I admittedly only work in the nonprofit sector. So maybe what I'm seeing is just among bleeding heart liberals and not really the general public, um, but it is a thing. <laughs> I think it's it's easy to give feedback when there's hard data of, you know, I gave you this task that you needed to do 40 times and you only did 32. Uh, but when it's about a qualitative, here's how you did it, uh, it does become much more challenging to frame things in the right way in which we're talk about it as a developmental experience. I'm providing you this feedback so that you can improve, so that you can get better, so that we can all flourish. And that so often depends on the work the leader has done beforehand to build rapport with that person and to get them to understand that the feedback is coming from that place of love or development or true connection. But I want to build on on the use of data in some of these things, because though in the nonprofit sector, you're right, often it isn't there. But your organization is actually compiling a massive set of data through the U.S. Trans Survey. And as we look at creating change, so often we have to present the data, give people a reason that the change is valuable. But there's the other side of that, that we have to build that connection and get that emotional, here's why the change is so important. How do you utilize both the hard data that you get from the survey and that piece that you need to develop as an emotional connection to drive the change that you want to see? It's really true that the data is essential first and foremost. I mean, when NCTE first started as an organization in 2003, uh, we would try to get meetings with government officials. And first of all, it was hard to even get a meeting because the word transgender was in the name and that was enough for them to not return the phone call. But if we got the meeting, they would say, well, what are issues people are facing? And we describe it, you know, homelessness, employment discrimination, so on and so forth. And they'd say, well, how bad is it? And we'd say, really bad. <laughs> They're like, but bad. And we're like, it's really bad. Like, you know, we just know it from lived experience, but, um, but that's not the same. That doesn't, um, even though we know it, we know it is true in our bones and we know it is true from real life. Um, that is just not convincing to, uh, a government official and especially a government bureaucrat, you know, working, someone working at a, in an agency. Yeah. You work at the VA or something. They're like, no, 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 no. I need the statistics. <laughs> Um, so that's why we took matters in our own hands and started the survey. We're a policy shop first and foremost, which means we work on, on changing all the rules and laws of our government. Um, we're not first and foremost researchers, but we just had to do it. There just wasn't any kind of data on transgender Americans. It just wasn't out there. We had no way to reflect the scope of the problem. Even federal government data largely doesn't track whether or not you are transgender. Yeah, even those surveys that have gotten better about allowing you to self-identify man or woman in some kind of more accurate way. Number one, they don't have non-binary as an option most 99% of the time. And number two, 
you know, for someone like me, I can correctly answer that I'm a man that doesn't reflect that I'm a transgender man. There's no way in those federal um, surveys to pull out that someone is trans. Or they do it so poorly, like one I had to take, which the categories were man, woman, or transgender. You know, like, uh, no, this is wrong. (laughs) That's a mess. That's a mess. (laughs) Yeah, that happens all the time. You know, the other day I had to go to a health clinic for something and, um, and they asked gender assigned at birth. And I was like, I know that's not what they mean. I know what they mean is what's the, is it MRF on my insurance card? <laughs> so I still checked mail because I was like, I know what you are using this for. But the technically the answer of gender assigned at birth is, is not that. There are a lot of well-meaning people who have no clue and in, do some unintentional harm. But yes, it's fascinating to see how we can get better at collecting data. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge field of expertise right there, just figuring out how to collect this data properly. Um, But yeah, so we started the U.S. Transgender Survey. It is the largest survey of transgender people's experiences in the country. Um, We run it every few years. And so we had last run it in 2015. And um, and now that we uh, did another cycle of it in late 2022, uh, we are on track to uh, not just beat our record of number of trans people participating, but exponentially beat it. Uh, we're still scrubbing the numbers, but we are on track for this to be many times over um, how many people completed it last time, which just is going to paint such a richer and more complex picture. Um, and it provides insights on everything from trans unemployment rates, uh, homeownership rates, uh, experiences in schools, you know, bullying, harassment, restrooms, healthcare, HIV status, everything. Um, it really covers all of these dimensions of daily life. Uh, and that's what then gives us the ability to say things like uh, this many percentage of um, trans people have been laid off from their jobs or fired from their jobs when they came out as trans. You know, having those statistics just packs such a punch. It makes it so much more clear and shows how high stakes what our community is facing. Uh, really is. So I'm very, very excited about this survey. We'll have the results of all of it available, hopefully by the end of this year, by the end of 2023. And then we'll be doing breakout reports by race. So um, all sorts of different trans people of color subgroups, um, like Black, Latin, AAPI, uh, Native American, American Indian. We'll have breakouts by race. We'll have breakouts by veteran status. Um, Last time we were able to do Uh, breakouts of bi trans people and we should be able to do that again and we even got some funding to be able to do um elder trans elder reports um for older folks so huge treasure trove of data (laughs) coming our way and i'm super excited to expand just a little bit on that though does the power of story and the ability to connect with someone who needs to get that data have to come first do you draw them in and then hit them with the data or are people like the data is great. I don't need story. Or is there some combination? Do you tailor that to the audience? How do you use both in different situations? 
really depends on the setting, depends on who you're talking to and why you're talking to them. Are you talking to them because they are a member of Congress and you need them to vote a certain way on a bill? Or are you talking to them because uh, you're purely trying to change hearts and minds and this is the public? Um, Or are you talking to an employee at the TSA and you're trying to uh, get them to finally update those gendered body scanners that we all go through at the airport? You know, depending on who the person is, how familiar they already are with trans issues and what you need them to do you're going to need to, you're going to need to present it all in a different way. So, um, for, but generally speaking, I think it's, it's both, you know, we try to couple it together as much as possible where you have the statistics and you have the stories. Um, and the good news is that that's, that's usually pretty achievable because the survey gives us all of these statistics on, on so many topics. And then the stories, you know, there are so many now resources out there where you can identify trans people live in any part of the country or what have you facing these situations. So, um, so I think it's really the combination that is the most powerful. You know, I think of it as, as head and heart. Um, you, you gotta get to both the head and the heart all the time. Um, and some individual people are going to be more than the other. So if you, if it's an audience of one, if it's a meeting, then you can be like, ah, this is really a data person, or this is really a heartstrings person and go, um, harder on that. But generally speaking, I think, I think it takes both, um, to really paint a full picture. Yeah, I was wondering about the storytelling aspect and well, and, and seeing kind of the theme across all of these, things that you've experienced in your career where it's, it's about being an effective communicator and it's being a nuanced communicator, right? And so whether it's field organizing or giving quality feedback in the workplace or trying to create change on, on a mass level, the, the nuance and the ability to have some agility and flexibility and to read the room is kind of what I just heard in, in, in what you just said. And so what is it that helped you develop those kind of communication skills? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it is really true that that is, uh, that is the through line. And I think what, I mean, I, I think, I think I, like many people, I'm still developing all the time, so can't claim that. So kind of silver bullet here. But I think what helps is, um, for me, just very like idiosyncratically of my life was that I felt like I was often speaking in translation. Um, my mom's side of the family is from Cuba. My dad's side is not. My dad's side is like American and white. Um, and I grew up with my two parents and my mom's parents, like my two Cuban grandparents. We were basically in the same household. Um, and so you have people from different countries there. And, you know, my my Cuban grandfather and my gringo dad were weirdly, like, really close friends. <laughs> and there was, um, even though they came from two very different cultures, and there was this sort of um, constant way in which I think my my sister and I were often, like, doing things in translation, either literally Spanish and English or culturally. Um, you know, I like to joke a lot about how I went to Brown University, which is this Ivy League school, and most people um, would be like, oh, that's great, but my grandparents were upset. <laughs> they were so mad because they didn't know anything about the Ivy Leagues. They have no idea what that is. They're from Cuba, and they were just mad that I was leaving Miami to go to college. How dare I? <laughs> yeah, they were not impressed. And so that's like an example of like this translation where it's like 
clearly there's some multiple conflicting cultural norms all happening at once and no one's a bad person, right? These are all my family and everyone loves each other, just really not on the same page sometimes. (laughs) So I think like growing up in that kind of environment in Miami, my hometown being such a multicultural place, like there was a certain level of just like, it was normal to be around different I don't know, multiple different kinds of people with different expectations and different values and from different parts of the world and whatever. Um, And so it really like teaches you to not make those assumptions and that like someone could have a totally different perspective and they're not wrong. It's just different. Um, And you have to actively mine at it. You have to like actually probe at it to figure it out. It's not just, you can't just assume that, you know, you can't take sameness for granted. Um, so I think growing up in that environment made it a lot more normal to be like having that fluidity. And I, I think that helped a lot. Rigo, before we close on what is hopefully a more positive note than the topic I'm about to, to talk about, I, I think something you mentioned earlier is, is something we can't avoid, and that's talking about Florida. And we're recording just a few days after DeSantis signed a new law uh, that basically encourages vigilanteism in in bathrooms, not just against trans people, but against anyone who may be perceived as different. Uh, And we have to start worrying about not only arrests, but potential violence and, and concerns for how do people take care of themselves? Or having Florida's own LGBTQ uh, advocacy organization say, don't travel to Florida. And this is different than, say, about 10 years ago when we had cities in Florida looking at passing non-discrimination ordinances. Understanding this is part of a backlash or an attempt to win votes when they're still there. How do we as leaders use not only our stories, but the ability to mobilize others to speak out on our behalf and to act as allies to help change and push back against these policies that aren't just going to get trans people hurt, they're going to get so many other people hurt as well? Yeah, it's very dangerous. It is dangerous in the most literal sense for trans people in Florida today, as in um, the environment is becoming increasingly hostile. And so it's getting increasingly scary to be trans in public or to like be perceived as trans in public. Um, and so it's it's quite alarming to see things escalate and flame up this quickly. Um and it also, you know, has, I think, a chilling effect around the country where it makes trans people worry about like, well, where we're, where is safe? Where can I go? You know, having to really think through, am I going to lose my health care? Is that like a real prospect for me? One really critical thing in times like this is to take concrete action. You know, it, it is... Um, very easy and natural to feel despair, but it's important to then still do something with it. Like it's not just a matter of reading the news and staying up to speed on all these terrible things that are happening um, or having to turn the news off and ignore it, which I don't judge anyone for doing. I get it. (laughs) That's self-care too. But it's like the choice isn't just between 
following all this terrible news or turning it off, there is a third option, which is taking action. There's a third option, which is getting involved. So I really, really encourage people to get involved in their local organizations. I mean, certainly welcome you joining NCTE. In the case of Florida, there's also Equality Florida. There's SAVE in South Florida. Um, There's Transsocial in South Florida. There's tons and tons of groups. And so like get involved because being able to actually do something about it is super empowering. It doesn't just have the practical effect of, of that, okay, now you're influencing the government for the better, but it's also psychologically really rewarding. Like I'm a big believer that activism is good for your mental health <laughs> because instead of just feeling like a passive player in life, like you're in the passenger seat and things are just happening to you, instead you get to feel a sense of agency you get to sense, you get to feel a sense of like, you are doing something about it. You are taking matters into your own hands. Um, and I think that empowerment really sticks with you even when you're losing. Um, there is still something really active about just being involved that feels good in the same way that that exercise can feel good, you know, getting up off the couch. Like at first you're like, I don't want to go to the gym, but then you go to the gym and you're like, that was a good idea, right? I feel better. Like that, that is activism to me. It's like that sense of um, exercising your own power, taking matters into your own hands and being able to actually do something about it instead of just being overwhelmed by it. So wherever you live, I guarantee there is a trans organization in your state. Um, And look it up. If you don't know where to start, contact NCTE. We will hook you up. Get involved in whatever way makes sense for you. So speaking of, of being active and feeling empowered, we're curious about, you know, the, the, ideas that our guests have about where we can take our work. We obviously are very passionate about this. Um, and, and we want to know, you know, what was it that made you say yes to participating in this? And what is it that you hope to see out of this? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I said yes, because I know Brie and have followed Brie for a long time. I was like, oh, Brie wants to talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> so- Yes, I do. (laughs) Right, I got to meet you, Liz. But then also, I mean, I was really intrigued by this premise of how does being LGBT shape your leadership journey. I honestly hadn't thought about it in that lens before, Um, and was at first like, oh, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. You know, I'm used to talking about legislation or something. Um, But then, in reflecting on it, it was really fascinating, and and hearing you all talk about like the role of trust and authenticity and leadership and what that means about being your true self. Um, So I was really intrigued by this sort of intersection of the very interpersonal um, or very personal, actually, like sort of introverted um, inward facing parts of like reflecting on the coming out experience and, and being LGBT with the then like external facing, like out in your career, trying to motivate teens um, that combination was super, super interesting. So props to you all for coming up with this. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> well, Rodrigo hang and we are so thrilled you did decide to join us. Uh, we think this was a wonderful conversation with a lot of ways for people to get involved, to learn, uh, to hopefully then take use of this incredible data set that you're going to give to the world soon, uh, and to keep bending that long arc. Uh, I think you're playing a, a wonderful role in that. We have a lot to learn from you and from one another. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for having me. It was great to see you all. Thank you for listening to this episode. Forged in Fire is hosted by Brie Fram and Liz Cavallero. Produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos and Christina George. Guest management by Trey Wirth and original music by Bridget Benemark. The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. To learn more about Forged in Fire, please visit us at forgedinfire.org. Thank you.